If you grab your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament pastoral epistle of Titus, it's a joy to be in the new book with you. Um, Titus is found very back of your Bible, just after 2 Timothy, just before Philemon. And as you turn there, let me remind you a little bit about the letter of Titus. Uh, the Apostle Paul is our author. So on his fourth missionary journey, likely in Macedonia around 63 AD, he sits to write a personal letter to a beloved young pastor named Titus, who is ministering the gospel shepherding the church in the island of Crete. Paul's hope is to prepare and encourage this young minister for the important ministry that God has given him, especially amidst real challenges and mistruths and opposition in that area, as we'll see today. Paul knows Titus well. They, scripture reveals that they've spent time together in this region after false, Paul's first imprisonment. He took Titus to Crete, where they ministered there together, and Paul departed, leaving Titus to carry on the work that was needed, the pastoral work that was needed, that they had begun together. May we remain so thankful to God for his providence to persevere and preserve this letter that we would have his holy written word and it would be included that we could glean from it so many generations later. I mean, let us come to the scriptures this morning, church, just grateful, grateful to have this, this help, this instruction. May God richly grow us in Christ with each portion of Paul's letter that we study. And so today we dive into Titus chapter 1. Verse 12 through 14, as we come to understand the type of testimony that must be rebuked. Look with me. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, and, I, and he quotes, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. In the onset of verse 12, Paul shares a testimony from a known Cretan. Paul quotes him here. The, the man uh, is believed to be uh, Epimendes. Um, he was a 6th century philosopher who was praised by his own people as being as important as Plato and Aristotle. He's held in high regard among that society. Understand, he's not a prophet in the biblical sense. Um, Paul's reference to him as a prophet of their own is more to highlight the position and pedigree given him among his own people, the voice that he is to them a respected, intelligent man with insight worth listening to. So he's just vouching. This is how the Cretans see Epimenides. <clears throat> Paul's referencing a credible man of the Cretan people was his way here of validating the testimony of the Cretans and specifically that they were known to be Liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Let's take a moment and consider the details of what is truly a bad testimony, right? If this is what's said about you, it's not very good. First, that they are always liars. Cretans had such a bad reputation for lying in that day. The, there was a, a Greek word which was adopted in that era, which meant to Cretanize. I mean, this was the way the Cretan people were known. And what did to Cretanize mean? It meant to lie. That's how big, how bad, how rotten this practice was among this society, to lie. 
truly ingrained in the fabric of the society and really seen as a way to make progress. You just, if you got alive, then you do it. Even their man-made Greek gods, Zeus, were known for lying to advance his causes. The songs written, the, the, the uh, works of antiquity, things written about Zeus in that day, really revealed the Cretan way was to lie. But church, this is no small sin, right? I mean, to, to lie is to break one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The Apostle John said it well in his first letter, 1 John 2, 21, no lie is of the truth. Late theologian pastor John Gill says a lie is a voluntary disagreement of the mind and speech with a design an intention to deceive. It is to speak that which is false and is contrary to the truth. I've said it before, it's worth saying again, a lie is a lie is a lie. To lie is to sin. To lie is not of the truth. There is no variation of wickedness in a lie as many like to think or argue there is to justify it. Somehow one bad outweighs another. And we've heard the adoption of a really toxic phrase, a white lie. And it's supposed to be some kind of innocent or harmless lie, one of not great consequence, as opposed to a really bad lie. But when a lie is told, Falsehood is perpetuated, it's promoted. So therefore, a lie has no grade of color. The whitest lie is as black as death. To deceive on any level is to deceive, period. And yet it's good to slow and say, why do people lie? I mean, what... What is it? Maybe even as you consider yourself, man, I, I struggle with this. What's the underlying motivation to lie? And, and it's very core, and it's why it is so foul. To lie is because you think you need something more than God. I mean, think about the weight of that for a moment with me. That we long for something, status, a perception by someone else of me, the avoidance of consequences, so much that I betray God to have it. But if Christ is enough, if you are truly satisfied in him, Secure in him. Firm in your identity in him. Then you don't need to lie. Then you get to be radically honest. Because you have Christ. And in that is freedom. Praise God that we who belong to Christ are no longer enslaved to our former identity, our former depravity and sin, but now empowered by the Holy Spirit to live our new identity in Christ. This new spiritual reality means we now can live for Christ by the power of the living God instead of living for the passions of the flesh that we were once controlled by in our depravity. Paul agrees as he writes to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, practice of lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 
Not trying to earn position with you. We have it together because of Christ. In Christ, we're able to put away falsehood that is linked to our sin and walk in the truth. When Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, the truth, and life, in John 14, 6, I am the truth, that particular clarity, that's meant to be revolutionary to our lives if we trust and honor him. Why? Because I can finally know true north. And I finally have the power in him, in Christ, who is the truth, to live the truth. I don't have to be enslaved to falsehood and lies anymore. If we truly belong to him, then we value the truth, then we fight our flesh, which loves the darkness and, and deception. We fight to speak truth. Even if it's going to cost me, in the short run, because I'm in Christ, grounded, identified, secure, I don't need to protect the facade that I once kept up with lies. And how good it is, how much of a blessing it is to get to be free. I love walking with many of you when you get to know this. You reach a new layer in your sanctification where you really risk to say, okay, let me pull off this other mask that I've worn, even as a Christian, when I didn't need to. And just really be me to share where I'm really at. So you can pray for me where I'm really at. So you can counsel me where I'm really at. Not the fake thing that I've propped up. Pursue Christ together in truth. If you're a person whom God is loving this morning by bringing heavy conviction for ways that you have essentially shared the testimony of the Cretans. Been a practiced liar. Instead of the testimony of those who are in Christ, who is the truth, who represents the truth, I say to you, confess your sin. Drag it into the light. Don't, don't let it hide. Be done with falsehood. Be done with lies. Live free in Christ. Live in truth. Look with me at the second sinful practice of the Cretans' bad testimony. He says they're evil beast. This is meant to convey wicked passions an appetite for things not honoring to God. They're carnal in their pursuit of physical pleasures. What's ironic is a study of the island of Crete in that day, they didn't have much wildlife on it. And so it's interesting, as one commentator I was reading was, was saying, the presence of the evil, beastly activity of the Cretan people was more than enough beastly representation in this space of the earth. Sadly, the Cretans were well known for a more barbaric behavior that was given to warfare, piracy among the ships coming to and from the island, perverted sexual, even homosexual encounter. Understand it's a representation of our sinful state when we're given to our fleshly passions. It brings to 
mind the very diagnosis given so clearly by Paul in famous words of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, speaking of those dead in sin, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Beloved, we must understand that fleshly passions are innately sinful and wicked. Sadly, the world's counsel is to follow your fleshly heart and pursue your deepest passions. And that makes sense that that's the world's banner mantra. Right? Because the, the enemy is the great deceiver. So it makes sense that the deceiver in this place that he has had so much rule and influence in has created such popular slogans as follow your heart and pursue your deepest passions. But that road to follow our hearts pursue our deepest passions leads to a very selfish, godless life. What Paul's highlighting of the Cretans is a testimony for what is carnal and honoring to self and, and whatever the self is just clamoring for, it just goes gets, as opposed to what is spiritual and and longing for what is honoring to God. That emphasis of the way the flesh is at work. Evil beast is to highlight the wicked pursuits and works of the flesh. The sinful flesh is not just pointing to a physical state, but the fact that our entire being is ruined by sin, corrupt by sin. Paul speaks to this in different ways. Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were not at work in our were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh are evident. The flesh is the ego that feels emptiness and then uses its own resources to try to fill it. It's the I who tries to satisfy me with anything but God. Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Does not submit to God's law. The basic mark of the flesh is an unsubmissiveness to God. It's, it's, it, it, it says, I'll do it myself. Scripture calls, speaks to this, the works of the flesh. Why is it a work? Because it stems from a heart that feels it deserves something or that it must earn its way. There's a harvest of sin that the work of the flesh produces when it labors. Listen to the rest of Paul's comments in Galatians 5, 19-21. The works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, 
envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Just a quick, deeper peek into some of the categories mentioned there. We think of evil beasts. We think of the testimony that comes with this, that Scripture speaks to this so much. We must see it clearly, church, because it's a testimony we cannot have, we should not have, in Christ. It's the old playbook. It's the clothes of the old team I used to play for. There's some categories we see in this passage. The first is sexual. If your flesh is at work and you are yielding to it, it produces sexual immorality. Something, something that God designed to be very special, very unique, in a very, very specific context. And, and we, we steal from it. And, and we make it common. And, and, and cheapen it. Greek word, porneia, a large number. It really is used for a large number of sexual sins. Where we get our word pornography, this would include any intimacy with another outside of marriage, any, any kind of lust or fornication or homosexuality or bestiality or incest or child molestation or adultery. The works of the flesh are, are passions and desires that are sinfully, sensually perverse. Another category we see here on the, the way the work of the flesh that goes to work is, is spiritual. It's, it's addiction to false spirituality. It's, it's givenness to pursuits of spiritual things that are, that are so wicked, sorcery. And witchcraft, and idolatry, idol worship. Right? Remember our definition of the word truth catechism for idol worship is not you making noises at a carved piece of stone. It's idol, idolatry, idol worship is worshiping or finding hope or identity or significance or purpose or security in anything other than in God our Creator. And as we've often said, that can be some of the best things in your life that you over-elevate and turn into an idol. Your, your success at your job, your, your, your giftedness at a certain thing in life, your, your, your spouse, your, a child, you name it. And then another layer we see here is the works of the flesh produces spiritual indulgence, I mean, personal indulgence, it's, it's, it's what we often call addictions. Indulgence, personally, it's, it, Paul's word is drunkenness. It's, it's where we indulge in the flesh, and it, and it, but it ends up leading to enslavement. An enslaved relationship with things like food or alcohol or media pornography or gambling or we give ourselves to it to such a degree our mind our thoughts our, our eyes our, our, our words our actions that it, it begins to master us we, we really become its slave so then it's not that we eat for nutrients or fuel we, we become gluttons we don't have control we don't have discipline it's not that we enjoy a good drink for the glory of the Lord. We, we, we become drunk. We, we see the world indulging, giving themselves to it, and, and we follow. We, it's not that we have conversations that are honoring to God. We, we pursue gossip. We, we, we perpetuate slander. It's not that we spend money. We become absorbed and, and caught up in things, in more, in better. The good news is God has shown his grace to save us from our enslavement to such things. 
Listen to Paul's words in Romans 7, 5 through 6. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. I read that earlier. Verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Oh, we are desperate for Christ to give us a new heart, to give us new passions, new birth, to finally have a right grip on the things that God has put in our lives, that we would steward them in a way that honors Him. If you are not yet belonging to Jesus, you are so desperate for new birth, so desperate for regeneration. For what is natural has to be converted to what is spiritual. I pray you would repent and believe and be saved. If you do, then you belong to Christ. Then the Holy Spirit indwells you and and goes to work and and gives you a a passion, not not for fleshly things, but for God-honoring things. To such a degree, you lose your tolerance for what is gross. You... Because you're not interested in keeping up the facade anymore, you're willing to drag it into the light and let people swarm with you to get it out of your life. Brother, sister, if you're struggling here, if you're struggling to make war with these passions, drag it into the light. Even if it means daily embarrassment, and, and fleecing humility, you have to do it. Because the other option is to get used to living a lie. Get used to a testimony that says it loves Jesus, but then betrays him. You become a hypocrite. Christian, you have the power in Christ to not do this. But you must put that power to work. You must fight. You must ring the bell. You must use the resources given you in the Word, the Spirit, and the church to fight with you. You do this for His glory. You do this for the sake of your testimony. Because you're listening to Scripture and you're understanding that God gave you today and maybe tomorrow and maybe this year and maybe 10 more years for a testimony. So what you don't do is put away what Scripture says and then find a way to hide for 10 years. If this is you, confess your sins to God and to trusted believers to seek true and lasting repentance. To do this is good and right. And I just pray you stop allowing yourself to to wander about, allowing yourself to be convicted in a moment like this, and, and then go, oh, let's talk about this or that. Brother, sister, you have to stop making excuses This is a priority. And I promise you'll be blessed for doing it. Will it make maybe your life really messy? It it surely might. But it will be better. Why? Because you'll be living in the truth. Because you'll be honoring the Lord in it. And that's a better life. We're made new in Christ. And so let's live these new lives in Christ, free of the old disease of our sinful past, so that we are no longer wicked beast, evil beast, but renewed saints belonging to God and fighting for righteousness. The last identifier that Paul has here of the Cretans is that they're lazy gluttons. Someone who is lazy doesn't like to work hard. Instead, they are good at making excuses for why they're not able to do what needs to be done. 
It's the opposite of the Christian life that seeks to honor God and labor and die to self every day. To go to bed tired. To get to be spent for Him. In Christ, we stop saying, I don't want to. And we start saying, the Lord has called me to. I get to. Paul commends Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7 to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Disciplines are practices. They're, they're things you do. Paul commends the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5.16, making the best use of our time because the days are evil. In our flesh, we want to be lazy. We want to just lie around and watch TV and scroll mindlessly on our phones. I'm fighting hard not to encourage us to just get a big bucket and throw our phones in them. There is great access that is helpful, productive, and, and it is so deceptively used to keep us lazy. In our sin, we literally reject hard work, work that makes us tired. Work that takes planning, work that takes good management. In our flesh, we just want to get by. But God's word is clear, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You who are under the age of 18, Work heartily as for the Lord. As for the Lord. And not just for what your parents are asking you to do. Don't, don't just do barely what they ask you to do. Do what is right. Do it heartily. Do it well unto the Lord. You who are employed have bosses. Don't just do what they tell you to do. Don't be that guy that barely does this minimum, you got some bogus job description and you're skating by for 10 years. Work heartily for the Lord. The job we work, the way we spend our free time, the way we raise our kids or manage our house or participate in our marriages is all an opportunity to honor God. Wives, don't just do what your head, your husband's asking you to do. Work heartily to fulfill the role of helpmate unto the glory of the Lord. What are you doing, church, with what God's entrusted to you? Are you honoring him with it? Or are you guilty of being like the Cretans who were lazy? Now, it's only half of what he says. He calls them lazy gluttons. Someone who's a glutton is one who's given over to indulgence. They're self-indulgent. They're, they're greedy. They're lustful. They're, they love to consume, never satisfied. Eat, drink to consume what they want and not what is good for them, not what is God-honoring. This is also a stewardship issue. Church, we must never lose sight. Everything I am, everything I have belongs to the Lord. It's, it is to be wielded for Him. This includes our, our, our schedules, our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple, Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Christian, how are you stewarding your body? Are you giving it proper rest? Are you honoring the Lord with this? Or, or are you saying, well, but my boss says I've got to work so many more hours. No, no, no. You are to honor the Lord. 
Are you giving it good diet? Are you giving it good exercise? One of the all too common, acceptable, permissible, overlooked, not talked about sins of Christians is poor management of our bodies. This is an important area of life. It's an important area of our testimony. We as leadership have seen a lack of attention to it in this area and are trying to repent of that in our own lives and then in setting an example and calling you to it. That, that Disciples Church would not be seen as Cretan-esque, as lazy gluttons, but honoring to the Lord in the stewardship of these areas of our lives. We're called to be a good steward of it. An illustration I've used before, it's easy. If I entrusted you with my car for a year and said, hey, enjoy it, be blessed by it, but take good care of it. But you never cleaned it. You didn't mind how you drove it. So you hammered on the brakes, you abused the tires, you dinged it up, you didn't maintain it with proper oil changes so the engine could run well, and then you gave it back to me. Would you have managed it well? And the answer is no. But all too often, that's how we essentially treat our bodies. We fill them with junk, toxic food, chemicals. We just consume chemicals. We don't give them enough sleep. We don't give it proper exercise. But our bodies are a temple. They're, they're a main part of the vehicle of our testimony for the Lord. Church, there's nothing light about this reality. We have to understand that God is worthy of good stewardship in this way. We need to take seriously our testimony. Because it displays who we belong to. It displays what we really love. The person who cares not for God's glory, the person who rejects that their life is a gift from God to be stewarded for his glory and to pur purpose their life is the person whose testimony is essentially a lazy glutton. The one who commits very little, consumes whatever they please. May our testimony in Christ be all the more reformed and growing in righteousness. Back to verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, they're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Paul says, this testimony is true. When Paul says this testimony is true, he's saying, the reputation of these people is validated by their actions. It's not just something we're being told that happens behind the scenes. We see it. It's not slanderous rumors that plagues the Cretans, their victim of slander. It is the ongoing evidence of their lived out lives. It's on display to validate their bad testimony. It's amazing how many of us can get caught up in telling ourselves that we are not what people are claiming we are. And yet our actual testimony, our actual day-to-day -day life Prove something different. Christian, let's not be one who's constantly just convincing myself I'm doing okay when I'm not. The things we continue to struggle with or give ourselves to is the unavoidable practice of our life. And this is why it's so important we're inviting others in to humbly know us, speak, reorient us to God's truth. To help us see what we don't, to help us admit what we haven't wanted to admit. This is why, church, we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. That the testimony of the disciples' church is not that there's a commitment to great doctrine and great preaching and, and there's a lot of great hearing, but then there's not a lot of evidence of doing. No, they, it's got to go to the doing. That's the fruit of a godly church. The problem is we're too good at self-justification. We're too good at excuse-making. 
even if you're super honest right now, even as you're thinking about a few of those things, you're already rattling off your, your well-refined excuses in your own mind. We're too good at talking it away, telling ourselves it's not that big of a deal. And then just continuing in our gluttony or our pursuit of sinful passions or our lies. Church, if we belong to Christ, this kind of bad testimony cannot be. Every true Christian has gone on public record to sail to the world that they belong to Jesus, that they're now empowered by the Holy Spirit to fight our sin, to live for his glory. So, Therefore, we must be known for making battle with our sin, for dragging our sin into light, slaying the temptations that pound on our door. So what then must be done with the person who is in your company and has this kind of bad testimony? Paul is clear. Helping Titus go to work and shepherding a people among this kind of culture He says, therefore, because their testimony is true, because this is true of these people, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. Therefore, because of this bad testimony, because of the evidence, the right response is to rebuke them sharply. This is simply application of what Paul already said in verse 9 that faithful and qualified shepherds are to do in the presence of those who contradict sound doctrine. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. To rebuke is to confront error, call it out, to highlight what's wrong and then to point someone to what's right. Despite what our modern world says, which is to leave each to his own, or that there is no absolute truth or governing authority by which we must obey, Those are the, that's the rhetoric of, of demonic world thinking. No, it is loving, it is right to point out errors or sinful ways of another, to love them enough to point them to truth, to the light, to call them from the muck and the mire to forgiveness, to freedom, to righteousness. God's word is clear that we are commanded to do this in love for each other. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It needs to be wise. It needs to be biblical where maybe you think you're good at admonishment but you're not doing it in great biblical wisdom is where you need help. Be helped, church. Let your shepherds, let mature brothers and sisters help you. Luke 17, 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Take care, brothers. Lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Please realize this is not abstract. Those of you who love your children, you do this all the time. You do it all the time. If one of my kids gets too rough with their sibling, I admonish and correct that child. I don't wait. I don't ignore it. I'm not lazy. I'm not fearful of how it might affect our relationship. I engage them with correction, with rebuke. If one of my children shows a pattern of sin and no sign of repentance, I bring forth a more formal sit-down or punishment with that child. If that still doesn't go well, Jennifer and I begin a process of correction that's ongoing, that has different layers of consequence. If that still doesn't go well, we invite further counsel to help us, maybe where we need help in this situation. Now many of you are sitting here going, okay, 
yeah, I'm doing that with my kids too, but the church family's different. I don't feel like I'm in a position where it's any of my business to do that with my brothers and sisters in the church, but you got to understand your brothers and sisters in the church are your family. And if we're listening to scripture well, there may be more your family than your blood family are. And so I love those around me to rebuke, to admonish, to warn in an effort to restore, to lead to repentance, those who are caught up in sin. Paul adds a word here to say that Titus needs to not pull back in any way, but that he should rebuke them sharply. This is rebuke in such a way that they clearly heed it. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. The Greek word Paul uses here that we translate sharply means to cut with penetrating force. So the goal is not just warning or reprimand, but the goal is repentance. He's to rebuke them so sharply that they turn to what is righteous, to bring about what is sound in faith. Paul's use of the word sharply is more in relationship to the seriousness of the sinful offense determining the sharpness of the rebuke. Since these sins were serious offenses against God, they required serious and sharp rebuke. Now, now let me clarify that. The call to sharp rebuke was not in any way to say that Titus should, in that practice, lose the characteristics of a godly leader. Right? While the rebuke was to be sharp and effective, God's shepherd is to do it in such a way that is not harsh or fleshly. Listen to how Paul gives similar counsel to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When someone comes to their senses, it means they finally see truth for truth. They no longer believe the lies and the deception that once motivated their sin. The rebuke, the sharp rebuke, helped them to awaken from their drunken stupor and to be sober-minded. And, and if you're, so I think we sometimes forget, we, we forget too often what it means to be drunk in sin. Um, when you're in the middle of your drunkenness, you really just aren't seeing any of it clearly. And yet, Please remember, Christian, how many times in your journey you're on the other side of that. You're finally standing there sober, looking back and going, wow. Thankful that people love me enough to help rebuke me sharply. That was a mess. The Holy Spirit is at work to motivate us in true repentance. This is not repentance that's surfacey. Just because you got caught, it's repentance that's really broken over what you've done to betray God. And therefore, a commitment to honor him moving forward. Let me add before moving on. Thankfully, there's a way for shepherds to honor God's call to be gentle and patient and enduring evil, while also at the same time to be sharp in rebuke. And as we see in the prior passage, to silence sinful false testimony. Why do I say this? Why do I say, praise God for that balance? I say that because we're all going to need it. All of us, me included, are going to need that along the way. And when it's our turn to, re to receive sharp rebuke, that is done God-honoringly in, in a gentle and loving way. We need to not say, because it was sharp, it wasn't God-honoring. That's not the way good discipline works. 
Of course it was hard to hear it. You were caught in nasty sin. Your flesh don't like it. Of course you didn't like it. If you did, you wouldn't be given to your flesh. Of course it hurts. Good discipline hurts. So, if you're there, can we be slower to critique those bringing the discipline? Because likely that's just another way of saying, look over there. But to heed it, to hear it, what do I need to hear here from people I trust? People that love the Lord. People that don't have an agenda right now for me. God's word is clear to say in Hebrews 12, 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. So can we stop saying, man, that rebuke wasn't very pleasant. You must have not been gentle. Do you see? There's a way to be gentle and have it still not be pleasant. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Praise the Lord. May righteous discipline from godly authorities be embraced and called good by those of us who truly belong to Christ. When we're being loved by another with correction or reorientation, may we not get caught up in saying, I don't like the way you did that. When what you need to be focused on is hearing the correction, the reorientation that you're trying to be given for your good and God's glory. Now, does that mean there's never refinement in how rebuke is done? No, that should be happening. Plurality should be protecting that. Other voices around should be helping to refine that. We in leadership long to walk through those situations, constantly saying, how can we do this better? How are we needing to grow? And we are growing. We've seen many times where we've not handled it well. We need to come back and say, we're sorry for that. Church, we need to not lose sight of the goal here. See with me that God-honoring, well-executed, sharp rebukes aim is to lead someone away from sin and false doctrine unto sound faith and sound doctrine. Hear it again. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. Oh, how we need to be sound in faith, devoted to God instead of false things. May it be so. May it be so. Looking to the second half of 13 and 14, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Devotion here is belonging. It's giving oneself to something. Uh, these had de devoted themselves to things that were not true. Jewish myths, man-made rules, What's interesting is in the modern church today, we have our own Jewish myths and man-made rules that many quote-unquote Christians become very devoted to, and it's all jacked up. It's all wrong. Instead of Jewish myths, we have Christian myths, Christianese, things that have become so popular among Christian society that it's believed to be biblical truth when it's nothing at all biblical. It's not biblical at all. Pithy, clever, even right-sounding sayings that in the end are not helpful, they're not biblical. They're actually a deterrent that leads people away from God's truth. Church, there's also commands of people in our modern Christian settings as well. These are religious or denominational rules that people have propped up. They're modes of operation that become like law in different circles. We all have to watch for this. Any of us can be prone to be given to this. We get a conviction of a certain way to do the Christian life, and we want to then declare it as, this is the only way everyone should do this. It becomes man-made commands. When there is no scriptural rule to it, and so the different ways this plays, denominationally or personally, if you're Catholic, then to be faithful, you have to be faithful to the Catholic Church, honoring their extra-biblical authority. That's wrong. 
If you're charismatic, then you have to have a certain amount of charisma to prove that you indeed are a faithful Christian. That's wrong. If you're zealous for a certain kind of Christian lifestyle that is popular, you can become guilty of exercising unrighteous judgment on others who don't value or do the same things you, the way you do them. Because what they're really in is more of a category of Christian liberty and not clear commands of God's word. Church, we need to be careful about the things that we become devoted to. For they can quickly become a religion unto themselves. Our historic church, and so many of you in the room have gone through much of your own journey of great reformation to identify many of the areas where you were caught up in tradition or denominational preference. You were devoted to Christianese like it was straight out of God's word when it wasn't biblical at all. But by God's grace, our church, so many of our faithful members, old and new, have joined us in a passion to be biblical. The essence of, this is the essence of what it means to be reformed. We want to be committed and devoted to God's truth and not anything extra biblical. We want to identify the things that we've clung to that's not biblical so we can change that grip and no longer be committed or devoted to it. No longer be devoted to man's way, but instead be devoted to God's way. Church, there needs to be a true pivot from the trappings of our flesh, the extra-biblical ways that we were once devoted to unto what is God-honoring, to, to live in the truth. Titus 1.14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. The plague, or you could say the threat of man-made myths, is ever-present, church. Paul warns Timothy of these same myths and man-made doctrines. 1 Timothy 1, 3-4. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Titus 1, 13, 14, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. We can't get caught up in man-made myths or commands, and if we do, we need to be rebuked. We need to be rebuked so that our testimony is fixed, so that we're not promoting what is sinful or of man, we're promoting what is truthful and of God. For we have died to our sin and now live to Christ. We want, therefore, to know and live in the truth. We want to live in sound faith and unto the glory of God. Can I just say, maybe you're on a journey lately where some things are being shown to you as being thoroughly biblical, and yet they make war with something about your Christianity that you have really liked. Something that maybe isn't very biblical. Can I just love you enough to say, don't keep tucking that away. Do business with it. The power, the authority to which you are committed is God and his word. Not your tradition. Not the teaching of your favorite childhood pastor. Not the experience that you had 18 years ago not the way you just hope it works out. Or it's important that we do this for our testimony. 
testimony is why we're here. If not, then just take me home, Jesus. Don't forget the recent, our recent study of the letters of John and John's testimony about Gaius. In his third letter, 3 John 3-4, through I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Church, we are to testify to the work of the Lord in our lives by walking, talking, living out what he has done and what he is doing in us. The light that he's shown us is to illuminate. Understand, it is not Jesus and then you. It is Christ in you and through you every day. He's the truth. Because we now belong to him, the truth is in us and it gets to go to work through us. This is walking in the truth. That is what it is to stand for what is true. Shining bright the truth of God to a dark and deceived world. The Lord has commissioned us to live as a bright light. Consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is to be our testimony, church. To see our good works, our God-honoring, biblical convictions, not our man-made traditions, and definitely not a Cretan-esque, fleshly testimony. The works of the flesh. May the evidence of Christ in us be at work. May God use us to point others to his light, to his gospel, to set them free. May we be devoted not to man-weighed ways, but to the truth of God. And as one of the pastors, elders, overseers of this flock, I agree with John when he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. May it be so for us all. Pray with me. Lord, we, we come together this morning with each of our own journey of this last week, the struggles that were a part of it, the victories, the distractions, the, all of it. And, and we just come together this morning desperate for you to be at work, the Holy Spirit to be at work in bringing clarity in your word to our hearts, our minds, and to move us. So, former pastor of old said wisely, conviction without action is wasted emotion. Help us, Lord, to really do business with the things that the Holy Spirit drew to our individual hearts and minds from the text. The ways in which you, the perfect and holy God, intended on this day to to do work in our lives. Oh God, you are so gracious to us to meet us where we're at in your providential ways to bring us to your word and together in the unity of Christ in the body to to do the work that's needed. I pray that we would heed it. I pray that we would embrace it and not turn from it. I pray for our testimony among those in our community, not that we would have it all figured out, but at least be faithful to the things that we've come to understand. And while not perfect, pursuing perfection, as you've called us to. To be holy as you are holy. To make much of Jesus. 
and our desperate need for him and the amazing power of the Lord who is at work in us. Use us, Lord, for your purposes. In, in victory or defeat, in, in sickness or in health, in struggle or smooth sailing, let us steward it well for your purposes, for your glory. We love you. Hear us now as we respond in unified voice of worship to you, our living God. In Jesus' name we pray.